Well, I hope your hearts are full of encouragement as mine is today as we have listened to these testimonies of uh, people who God has claimed for his own. Uh, that is what has been displayed before us. This morning, because our time is a little shorter, I thought what I would do this morning is just talk about these great ordinances that we've seen. God graciously has given to the church through Jesus Christ two clear ordinances that we celebrate. One is baptism. And the other is the Lord's table, which we will partake at the end of the the service. These are wonderful, wonderful ordinances that God teaches us over and over and over the gospel through it. Uh, What a recurring theme that we heard through the testimonies. There's an understanding of sin. But then there's an understanding I don't know what to do with it. (laughs) What do I do? I've understood that I'm, I'm not the person that God or the scriptures teach I am to be. And then there's this emptying of oneself and saying, God, what do I do? And there the Lord Jesus Christ shows himself through the word of God to each and every one of these these dear brothers and sisters that were in the waters of baptism. They need a savior. And God grants them faith so they can believe and repent and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's table as well, as we'll look at this this morning, as well as a picture of Christ great ransom for us. And these ordinances are given to the church and we're to be reminded of them. We're to do them often, the Bible speaks of it. And we're to teach these things to all the nations. So it is a great privilege to take a few minutes this morning and talk about it. I'm titled the sermon, The Gospel and the Ordinances. Now the reason I did that is because each, each ordinance, as we've seen, displays the gospel, displays a need for a savior. And how Christ provided. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. Dorman read this for us already this morning, but we'll jump out of this passage and then in a moment into Matthew 26 that he read previous to it. Matthew chapter 28, we know, is the Great Commission, right? This is Christ's final words. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ right before he ascends on high. He's giving one last charge to the church, it's going to be birthed. And the men that would spend their life with the Lord Jesus Christ now are going to be the ones giving testimony. And in this great text, if you look down towards the very end of it, verse 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Isn't that a beautiful saying? That's what we've seen this morning. Did you hear each and every one of these people talked about someone who was influential in their life? Someone who took time with them. Someone who prayed with them. Someone who showed them the gospel. That's obedience. That's what the church does. That is the greatest role that we do. Missions and the the spreading of the gospel, whether that's at your workplace or overseas. This is missions. This is what we do. And so Jesus reminded us here, go. It's it's actually a command. It's, It's actually written as though he believes we've already doing it. Good question. Are you doing it? Do you want to be parts? Would would you want to be in a place where God would use you, where someday you would hear the testimony that God actually used you to share the gospel? And so Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It does not discriminate. (laughs) Discrimination is a problem in our world, isn't it? But not with the gospel. (laughs) God calls people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, all of that. He brings them to himself. And he loves to do those things. 
And so we're encouraged to go teach this. And then it says baptism. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is the word that's used throughout the scriptures, this word to baptize. Most of the time, the word is not used in regards to the physical aspect of it. It's used in a spiritual aspect. Meaning, did you, well, let me say this. Did you see what was written on their shirts when they went out? I think this side could probably see it a little better than the other. It says, identified in Christ. That's baptism. None of that water, as Pastor Brian said, there's nothing about it. I, I know that Troy turned on the fountain. It just came out of our well or wherever we get our water. So there's nothing special about it. But it teaches. It teaches. And it teaches that those people were publicly proclaiming, I'm identified in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. I follow him now. This is the public proclamation of it. Well, let me give you a little background to Christian baptism. Um, Baptism's been around for a long time, the immersing of people. It's used throughout the Old Testament. Um, Early Judaism talked about proselytes that would uh, practice this. It's even in the Mishnah that reminds us that if a man would uh, turn as a proselyte to God, uh, even the day of Passover, if he would immerse himself, there's the word, baptizmo, he would immerse himself and be cleansed. He could actually have the Passover that night. So we see the word used quite a bit. The Quorum, which is a group of Hellenistic Jews that gathered, oh, at least 150 years before Christ, they practiced it. They practiced baptism, but they did it mostly because they wanted a, a different lifestyle and, and, and they saw it attached to being saved, right? So most of what we see in the uh, in the world or even in pre-church, baptism was part of your coming to God, salvation of some sort. But not New Testament baptism. Not New Testament. Before we get to that, we know that John the Baptist came, right? Well, that, he's entitled something that catches our attention here. So John the Baptist comes, and John's baptism was not directly tied to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It wasn't what we would say a Christian um, or a believer's baptism. But John baptized preparing people for the coming of the Messiah. Time is limited here this morning, but something to jot down. Go look at Acts chapter 19. There the Apostle Paul comes upon some disciples of John. Now, 19 chapters into the birth of the early church, John, Paul comes across these disciples, and he says, have you been baptized? He says, look, we've only been baptized into John's baptism. And so what that meant is, well, we, we know we're sinners, but we don't know what to do with it. And there the Apostle Paul explains the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These men believe, and then they are baptized, identified in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's many passages throughout the scripture with John the Baptist preparing the way for a Messiah, preparing the hearts of people to understand that the nation was sinful and it needed a Savior. And yet most of them did not recognize what John was talking about. And later, as we've been studying the book of Mark, John was killed. But what about the foundation of Christian baptism? It's such an important thing. Christ commanded it. The foundation of everything we've done here this morning is not founded on Riverbend Community Church. That we built a building with a baptismal in it. (laughs) 
It's founded on the command of Christ. We read that this morning already several times. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. One of the things we love about baptism is we are obeying our Savior. It's a cool, isn't it? I mean, just to think about that. 2,000 years ago, Jesus told the disciples who would preach the original sermons that the church would be birthed on, be launched on, he told them, go baptize. And we're not doing anything different. You know why? Because we don't attach salvation to baptism. And so it stands the test of time. We believe God's word. We believe what it says. We, we hold to it. And so to here 2,000 years later, we're doing exactly what Christ commanded. I, I think that's great. I think a lot of religions are always changing and they're morphing and they're moving with the culture and so forth, trying to engage people in different ways. We're just trying to do what Jesus says. That's all we're trying to do is identify people in the Lord Jesus Christ because he commanded it. It's practiced in the early church. We see it all through the book of Acts. Look with me at Acts chapter 2 real briefly. Keep your finger there in Matthew. Now flip over to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. This is, this is following the great sermon by Peter as he preached the gospel. And many were saved, and we'll see the results of it in this text. Verse 38, Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and following. And Peter said to them, Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, right? That's all of us, right? As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Wow, God's sovereignly involved in salvation. He's sovereignly involved in our obedience that we would believe in him, we'd put our faith in his son, and we would follow in the obedience of baptism. God clearly wants a, prof- a, a public proclamation of what God has done in your life. Pastor Brian asked you to raise your hand if you've been baptized. When you were baptized, you stood before those people and you publicly said, my faith is in Christ. You know, they've been doing that for 2,000 years. And five more people just followed in the wake of a church that's 2,000 years old, of people standing in the waters of baptism and saying, I repented of my sins by the grace of God. He showed me I needed a Savior. My faith is in Him alone. I want to be publicly identified with Christ right now. And you and I just witnessed that. I hope that's cool to you. Is that not, does that not get the little chills going? But for 2,000 years, we're doing the same thing our Lord Jesus Christ commanded us to do. We're not messing with it. We're not trying to move people emotionally into something. We're obeying the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the church is commanded to do. And so they've been practicing it all the way through. It was taught throughout the epistles. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, you know, I thank God that I didn't baptize you. Because remember, they're trying to put their faith in man. And Paul's trying to say, hey, I don't have anything to do with your salvation. I'm preaching the message. And he says, I, I thank the Lord I didn't baptize any of you. Then he goes, well, wait a minute. I think I baptized Christmas and Gaius. But, but, <laughs> but it, what it tells us, what that passage tells us is that baptism has been happening beyond Acts. It's beyond even the birth of the church. It's clear the 
early church understood the meaning of baptism. Notice in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, it says, in the name of Jesus Christ. We baptize in the name of Jesus Christ, not in the name of Riverbend Community Church. That wouldn't get you anywhere. That doesn't, that doesn't have any ownership or anything. It's in the name of Jesus Christ. It's a technical term. It means ownership. When we say that Jesus is our Lord, he is our, the Greek word is kurios, he is my Lord, he is my master, he is, he is my owner, I am now marked by him. In a sense, in, in, in baptism, we are saying, I carry the brand of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been branded by Christ, I belong to him. As an old cowboy, brands are very important because they tell you who you belong to. We're branded by the Lord Jesus Christ. And those people stood in the waters of, of baptism and said, look, I belong to him. My identity is in Christ. Look at Romans chapter 6, just briefly. Romans chapter 6. Remember I told you that most of the times the word baptism in the, in the New Testament is not always talking about the event, though we have that. We have it in Acts 16 and Acts 8 and other places where, where people are baptized physically in the water, most of the time it's talking about your position in Christ, who you are. Look at this great text. Romans chapter 6, Paul has been speaking on the purity of the gospel, that, that you can't save yourself. It is the act of God to save and open the mind and heart of man to draw him to himself. He is not dependent upon man in any way to save us. He is this perfect work. It does not take works to gain salvation. He knew that that message was going to be hard to hear. And he knew there were religious people out there who were going to say, oh, great, Paul, you're teaching this message of salvation that is just don't have to do anything and everybody's going to come and we're going to have a mess. So Paul starts to answer that. And listen how he uses the word baptismo, meaning to be identified in Christ. Listen to how he uses this. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Ooh. He's responding to them before they're asking the question, isn't he? See, people are saying, look, oh, you people that believe in Jesus, you just, you say you believe in Jesus, but you just go live any way you want. And Paul's going, uh, yeah, that's impossible. That's impossible. How can we, as he say, he says in verse two, may it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Still openly live in sin, knowing what God has said and have no brokenness over our sin, no, no desire to ask God to help to stay out of it. How can we be that way? He uses a word, mejinito, in the Greek means that's impossible. May it never be. See, Christians, though we are not perfect, as was said in the waters, we would all say that we are not perfect, but we are perfectly forgiven. And now God puts a desire in our hearts to strive for him, to live different than the world. Verse three, now here we go. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ. Now here's our word, baptismo. Not talking about water baptism. Let me read it this way. Or do you not know that all of us who have been identified into Christ, that's saved into Christ Jesus, have been identified into his death? Oh, see, this is why baptism pictures the gospel. You heard the pastors say, you know, baptized in, in identified in his death. And then in the new, walking in the newness of life. We identified in that. Verse 4, therefore we have been buried with him through identification into his death. We identify with Christ. I love to say it this way. When Christ died, Scott died. 
1970, I died with Christ. That's when he saved me. I love to say that. When Christ died, Scott died. When Christ beat death, Scott beat death because of Christ. See, that's what Paul's saying. Therefore, we've been buried with him. My sins went down with him. He forgave them all. I'm identified into his death. My sins died with Christ, past, present, and future. That's the demonstration before you. That did not wash their sins away. That had already happened when God opened their hearts to faith in Christ. So baptism identifies you also with Christ's church. This is an interesting point. Think through this with me. One cannot be united to the head, that is Christ who is the head of the church, without being united to the body. So we talk about this a lot with people being baptized. Hey, are you pursuing membership in the church? Are you going to publicly tell everybody also, I belong to the church? Because you can't be identified with Christ and not be identified with his body, right? Christ is the head of the church. The body is the, the, the body of the, of the church. This is the believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a real connection between baptism and being part of a church. Notice they did not get baptized somewhere down a bunch of, in front of a group of people they didn't know. They chose to be baptized in front of their church. In essence, they're saying, look, we're one of you. We have, by God's grace, put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're now part of the body of Christ. Jesus is the head of it. There's many members, many arms and legs that make it up, and we're a part of that. We want to publicly say this morning, we're a part of the church because Jesus Christ saved us and put us in it. See, baptism, you don't want to miss that. Baptism is part of that. And that's why the church has always identified people into Christ. So baptism is a normal, initial right into the visible body of Christ. We, we see those people as now members of the church. And we pray they pursue physical membership with us to say, hey, this is where we're going to serve the Lord together. And so this initial sign, as Pastor Brian said, of, of identification should follow closely after the birth of salvation. Now, that doesn't always happen. We heard Shannon this morning. She was wrestling. I don't know when I was saved, but there was times in my life, particularly towards that end of her high school and those first years of college, she began to wrestle with those things. And somewhere between then and now, she has realized God has saved me. He's opened my eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ. I put my faith in him. And once that comes, once that understanding comes, we would encourage you, be baptized. Be baptized. And sometimes when we wait too long, um, some of the significance can be lost in, in the sense of the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember in Acts chapter 16, uh, Paul and Silas are in prison. They're singing praises to the Lord. The, the earthquake comes. The jail sa- jailer goes, well, I'm dead. Everybody's gone. They're, Roman's going to kill me, so I might as well just kill myself. And Paul says, whoa, 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 whoa. We're all here. And they heard the gospel through their singing. And the man cries out, what must I do to be saved? And Paul tells him very clearly, believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and you should be saved. And that night, the Bible says that night, him and his household, all those who believed were saved. 
And so there's a response to salvation. Baptism is a response to what Jesus Christ has done. It doesn't save you. It's fruit of what you've done, right? It's fruit of what God has done. And I, I think this is why I love baptism services so much because I go, wow, God, you're showing your fruit to your visible church that you're still saving. Who's next? Is it one of your family members that God's going to save? Is it a coworker at work that you're sharing the gospel with? Is it a neighbor that you've been out walking with and they're seeing a difference in your life? Who is it that God is going to draw to himself that he's going to use you to do it? Maybe they will be in the baptism water soon. One last thought just on, on baptism here. The teaching of Christian baptism, we know is the word baptismo means to dip, immerse, submerge. It's, it's used in extra biblical materials of sunken ships. It's used of women washing their dishes down in there. So we talk about immersion because it's, I just don't want a little of Jesus sprinkled on me. I want the whole thing, <laughs> right? I think you notice you that had really good views over there. Did they get all the way into over there? Is that good? You guys could verify it? Thank you for thumbs up over there. We do that <laughs> because we don't get just part of Christ. We're fully immersed in him. And so when the Father now looks at those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, he sees them enveloped in Christ. I think young Caleb, referred to affectionately by his friends and family as Glenn, said this, when the Lord, when God looks at me, he will see his son. Did you catch that? I bumped you in and go, that's good theology by a young man. And that's, that's baptism. It's spirit-filled memorial of that Jesus Christ died for me, having been buried with him in baptism, Colossians chapter 2, verse 12 says, having immersed in him, I now am raised with him. It's also prophecy. And they said this too. I mean, they were preaching the sermon, if you're really listening it says there's some prophecy in a sense here. It, it prophesies the resurrection of the Christian body from the grave. I, I think uh, Josh might have referred to this in his passage that he read. Because Christ was raised from the dead, we're raised from the dead. And if you follow 1 Corinthians 15, the argument there, it says because Christ has made us the first fruits, he's coming back for us. So baptism, showing that they come up out of the water, that their sins are forgiven, not from the baptism, but the result of the work of Jesus Christ, his finished work on the cross, also says, my God is coming back for me. It's prophecy, isn't it? Uh, let's see, baptism just goes on and on. Isn't this beautiful? This is why we do this. This is why you're all here today. And I pray you're greatly encouraged. One last thought, we can't miss this one. Baptism symbolizes Christ's death and burial of our, of our sins, and his resurrection shows that we've been justified. Now, this is a, such an important point. Romans chapter 4, verse 25 says, he who, delivered o- he who was delivered over, that's Jesus, delivered over because of our transgressions. That's, that's a really dark word for sin. Then it says this, and was raised for our justification. So when Christ came out of the grave, which was, which was uh, taught through baptism, he granted us justification, all those who would believe. Now, you say, Scott, what does that mean? It means that Scott and 
Glenn and, and, and Shannon and all the rest of them and that were done there and you and I who raised our hands and said we've been baptized, that the Bible assures us because Christ beat death, came out of the grave, that God now looks at us declared righteous for all of time. You know how important that is? When you stand before God, when this, di- when this life is done and your life is over, if you are not standing in the righteousness of Christ, you go to hell. It's very clear in the scriptures. And baptism says, I've been justified with Christ. My sins are gone. I wear the righteousness of Christ now. And when I die by death or by rapture and I meet God and I come face to face, he'll look at me and say, you've been justified by my son. Come on in. Ooh. It's just not a, a picture opportunity or an Instagram opportunity. <laughs> Baptism isn't. This is what we believe in every aspect. Second, the Lord's table. Turn with me back to uh, Matthew 26. I have just a few minutes before we actually turn to the table and partake in this. Matthew chapter 26. Night before his death... All the Gospels record this, but I chose Matthew this morning to, just to read two passages that were closely to each other. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. Dorman's read these for us, but let's relook at them. Again, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is, the, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, the Lord's table has many names. Um, the Bible gives it different names. I've had people say, well, why do you call it communion and why do you call it Lord's Supper? Because the Bible calls it this way. Um, it's, it's referred to the breaking of bread. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. There's a real distinction in the uh, early church. where you could, If you study it well, you can see where they had a fellowship meal together, a love feast together, and when they did this, the Lord's table. And Acts chapter 2, verse 42, clearly is they're practicing just after the birth of Christ, just not very long after Christ introduced this to the disciples before his death, they are practicing what they called breaking of bread. It's also called communion. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 is not, is not the cup of blessing, which is a blessing as shared. The word is koinia, communed. We commune in this cup of blessing in the blood of Christ. We share it. We fellowship in it. And so we get the word communion. Is not the bread which we break a sharing, a communion in the body of Christ? So we commune with him through this, in a sense. We're having a meal with him. It's not a meal that you're going to go away and say, you know, I don't need to have lunch. In fact, you're probably more hungry than ever. But, but here, we're having a meal with him. We're communing with our Lord to remember what he has done. It's also called a Eucharist. And I know there's some groups that really run with this, but Eucharist is simply, the, the Greek word just means to give thanks. 
1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so really when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, communion, we're celebrating a time of giving thanks. I, I really enjoy that part of it. I know in the past, uh, maybe you were raised in churches where communion was beat you up time. Um, I was raised in some of that. And so you ended up doing penance during communion. You think of all the bad things you've done and you try to get right with God before the cup gets to you. And if you're in the front row, you're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> you sit in the back so you get some time to get right with God. That's not what communion is about. And though it may trigger some thoughts in your mind, it may, it may be time that you go, oh God, I, I know I'm not walking with you, will you help me? That may happen. But the goal of communion is giving thanks to the Lord. This reminds us that without his death, burial, and resurrection, we go to hell. There is no church. There's no kingdom. There's no heaven for anyone but God himself. That's why we give thanks. And so you've noticed over these last four years that communion to me is celebrate in a lot of ways. I'm excited about communion. I love communion Sundays because we get to remember the gospel. It's also called the Lord's Supper. You've heard us referring to that already this morning, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's rebuking them of mixing up the uh, fellowship meal with communion, and he's getting on them about those things. They're not handling it well. But he says this is the Lord's Supper. So we sup with the Lord. And then, of course, we call it the Lord's Table. He reminds them not to intermingle false religions with it. He says we don't take the cup of demons um, we cannot participate in the Lord's table in the table of the demons. So, so there's a term that we have. So there's five terms in the Bible that we can call this thing. Now what is some of the background of it? Well, having supper with the Lord was sanctioned by him the night before his death. We just read that. We're having supper with the Lord today to remind us of what he has done. And Paul says, look, in the same way he took the cup after the, after the supper saying, this cup is a new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So Paul adds that, the spiritual enrichment of remembering what Christ has done. Think about this, when it was first done, the disciples are still trying to figure out who gets to sit on his left and his right. Can you imagine the aha moment when the Spirit of God hits the disciples and they go, oh, that's what that was about. That was beautiful. Do you remember how he broke the bread and passed it around to us? He was talking about his own body that he was going to die. Do you remember when he took the cup of blessing and he sipped from it and he passed it around to us? He was speaking of his blood that would take away our sins for eternity. Imagine when that hit those disciples. And they go, wow, we got to do this. (laughs) And they did. And we've been doing it for 2,000 years taking part of the Lord's Supper, reminding ourselves of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we could have a relationship with him. I got thinking about the Lord having meals with people. Because we're really today, the Lord's with us. The Bible says he's with us. He gathers with us. He lives in all believers. He permanently indwells us. He's where we're at. When we gather together, he's with us. So in a sense, we're having a supper with the Lord. But there's lots of places in the Bible. Exodus chapter 24. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders went up on a mountain, right? And they saw the God of Israel, the Bible says, verse uh, 10, Exodus chapter 24, verse 10. 
And under his feet, listen to this, there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. I'm not sure how I would have got by that part. Then it says this. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. So they're in the presence of God and he doesn't kill them. That's what the verse says. We're in the presence of God and he's not killed us. But then the Bible goes on to say this. And they saw God and they ate and drank. So he's been doing this. Deuteronomy chapter 14 You shall eat in the presence of the Lord. As he talks about the sacrificial system, they're to bring tithes and offerings to the Lord. And a portion of those, they were sit with the Lord at the tabernacle, at the temple, surrounded around there, and they're to eat that meal with the Lord. So we have that. And yet, and yet, um, when we think about what we're doing here, the fellowship that we have here is even far better because all that Old Testament sacrifice that they were talking about having a meal with the Lord had to be done over and over and over and over because their sins were never forgiven from it. You and I celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. We celebrate it because our sins were taken care of once and for, thank you, once and for all. Far better meal that we have with the Lord today. And so we come and say, Lord, yeah, and you may say this today, I, I don't walk with you the way I know you would have me. I, I, I miss joy. I miss opportunities to be used by you because I don't, Lord, but I am grateful. I hope you can say this. I am grateful you saved me. I had nothing to do with it. You alone chose to save me. I, I'm a poor wretch that deserves your wrath. But thank you for saving me and thank you for having this meal with me and reminding me of what you have done. Just a couple more thoughts and we'll close this out i think the lord's supper just like baptism looks forward to the future as well the lord's supper today looks forward to more wonderful fellowship in the presence of god in the future and, and this will be when the fellowship of eden the garden of eden is restored and there will be even a greater joy because those who eat in god's presence will be forgiven sinners and they'll be confirmed at that point that they are going to live forever with him. Not that there's any doubt now, but when you stand and, and, and all sin has been removed that even hampers us as Christians to understand who he is, and we stand in his presence, you will understand how great this is. And so there's a future, and even in our verse it said, Jesus said, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink of it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. It's reminding us there's a great feast coming, right? Revelation chapter 19.9 says that blessed are those who are invited to the Lamb's Supper, to the marriage of the Lamb's Supper. We're going to eat with them again. And so we're practicing here, in a sense. Lord, we thank you that your body was broken, that you bled for us. And so as we look at the teaching of the Lord, it's instituted by Christ. He gave it to us. Just like baptism, he gave us this. He asked us to do this. It's practiced in the early church. Paul explains it throughout the epistles. By the time he gets to 1 Corinthians, they're mistreating it, so he's warning them, don't mishandle this. You can't get saved by this. If you try to mishandle the supper, some, some get sick, some even die. He warns them of that. This is not meant for your, your soteriology of you getting saved from this. If you mishandle this, bad things happen. So it's deep into the church already. 
Now we look at this and it's a table um, and we feel, the, we understand the memorial, the spirit-filled memorial that Christ died in our place. One, one last thought about this. Mark chapter 14, verse 24, he says, this is my blood of my covenant. And listen to this. Which was poured out for many. Five, we just saw today. Mark 14, Peter is rehearsing that sermon. Mark's probably recording this. And, and Jesus says, look, this cup is a reminder of the blood I'm going to pour out for many. That many is you. If you truly are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and so when we come to these ordinances, whether it's baptism or it's communion, our heart is just filled with joy. And it gives us a refreshment that Lord is with us. It reminds us that we have a union with Christ and that cannot be broken. It reminds us that we have an enduring fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, a koinonia that, that he brought us together with him. It fuels our love for Christ. Does that not fuel your love for Christ when you see that? I, I hope it does. If it doesn't, you should go, Lord, I, I, I need to check my pulse here because I don't get what pastor's talking about and baptisms and all that, so I don't get it. For a believer, this fuels us, man. All right, look out. Who's God going to save out there? Because I want to be a part of that. See, it fuels your love for Christ. It causes us to celebrate him with an obedient life. Lord, I don't want to live this way any longer. I want to turn from sin. Even though you've saved me, there's things in my life I want to get rid of. I see that sin, sin hinders my joy and my walking with you. It energizes Repentance. It energizes a love for the word of God. Wow, God, your people have been doing this for 2,000 years. And the ones who are the true church do not mess with it. I think that's pretty cool. And I think that encourages us as we look at this. It causes us to love one another. I mean, we clapped, right? Some of us cried as we saw that. There's a great love for those five people. There's a love for each other. These ordinances cause us to love one another. And they cause us to serve one another. How are you serving? What are you doing with the salvation God has given you? Do you serve or are you always being served? See, these, these cause us to remind us. I think they also, and finally, just this last thought, they equip you for suffering and possibly even persecution. If they broke in here today and said, hey, if you partake of this, that's a mark of, of you being against us, what would you do? <laughs> See, I, I love the Lord, and I'm going to keep doing this as long as I have breath and life, and I'm going to keep teaching it and, and excited about it because this reflects what Christ did for me. So it prepares us for suffering, and it strengthens you to trust in God. I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm going to make my way down here, and the guys are going to come forward, and we're going to celebrate the second ordinance given to the church. Father, we praise you for this time together. We have been encouraged. We have been stewarded that you love us and you proved it. You sent your son while we were yet sinners. That verse was shared in the waters of baptism. Why we did nothing to offer you, absolutely empty-handed, you came and got us. That's grace, Lord. That's grace undeserved. Our hearts are captured by love that does not require anything in return. It's a love that captures us. 
And so, Lord, as we think about the ordinances today, both baptism and the Lord's Supper, Lord, we are reminded how kind you are to us. You don't want us to get very far from these central truths. All of our doctrine and our teaching, our preaching, everything is based on these truths. That Jesus Christ came when we were undeserving of it. And he died for us. He took away our past, present, and future sins. He was buried, and when he died, we died. And then he beat death, and you raised him from the dead to show that we were justified, declared righteous. Lord, everything we believe is based on that. So, Lord, we thank you for this truth. May we be encouraged now as we participate in a meal with you. In Jesus' name, amen.